Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is August the 27th, a Sunday, 2023. Don't need me to tell you that after August comes September and then October. And this October, October 2023, will be the 50th anniversary of what, according to Wikipedia, is called the Yom Kippur War, but also is known as the Ramadan War. I've always thought of it as the Yom Kippur War. Uh, one of the most influential post-Second World War uh, wars of the 20th century, a war that shaped or reshaped the Middle East, its politics. Um, my guest today, uh, Uri Kaufman, he's, his day job is as a real estate developer, but he spent the last 20 years researching uh, the Yom Kippur War, and he has a book out, The Result of All This Research, uh, 18 days in October, the Yom Kippur War and how it created the modern Middle East. And uh, Uri is joining us from Long Island today. Uri, um, I'm not digging on your uh, on your uh, your uh, age, but where were you in uh, October 1973? I was a nine-year-old boy uh, running around in my dad's synagogue. He was a rabbi like his father before him and all the others that came before them. Um, and I saw for the very first time in my life, there was a group of men. This is an Orthodox Jewish synagogue or shul is the word we would use. Where, whereabouts? In New Haven, Connecticut. And one of the congreg congregants was a young Connecticut attorney general named Joe Lieberman. Very, very nice guy, by the way. And uh, there was one group of men with a transistor radio listening to news from Israel, and then another group of men on the other side screaming at them, how dare you bring a radio into synagogue on Yom Kippur? Uh, and I had never seen either before in my life. I was only nine years old. Never saw anybody bring a radio into an Orthodox Jewish shul on uh, a Jewish holiday or the Sabbath. And I never saw people screaming at each other. It was, it was quite a sight. Such a nice guy, uh, Joe Lieberman, that um, he's even uh, blurbed your book. Uh, he uh, he says, Kaufman tells the story brilliantly. Anyone interested in the Middle East or military history would appreciate Kaufman's work. I assume you've kept contact with him. Th those were dramatic days, especially the first few days, weren't they, um, uh, uh, Uri? Uh, within, the, within the Jewish community, there was the sense that Israel was facing a, a, an existential, we use this word all the time, but it, it, it really was facing an existential crisis in those first few days. It certainly was. And in fact, Moshe Dayan, who was literally the very symbol of Israel's fighting spirit, you could say, the man, I would say more than any other single individual who is credited with building the Israeli army as we know it today. There was the Israeli army of before 1953, which was a very hesitant, didn't really, you know, didn't accomplish all that much. They were only obsessed with one thing, and that was avoiding casualties. And then in 1953, at the tender age of 38, he was uh, appointed chief of staff, and everything changed, changed the whole ethos, the whole culture, the whole everything. And that's the Israeli army as we know it today. And Moshe Dayan, 
uh, said, you know, we're playing with the destruction of the third temple here. The third temple meaning the modern state of Israel. Uh, this is a real serious situation. Uh, Israel lost almost 10% of all its tanks right on the first day of the war. Uh, this was not sustainable. It also lost not quite as many uh, fighter jets, but similar number between 5 and 10% on the first day and with uh, a limited prospect for resupply from America. So it was a very, very dangerous situation, no doubt. Uri, um, it's not possible to talk about anything in the Middle East without, in, as again, don't need me to tell you this, enormous controversy. There's camps on everything. We've, we've done all sorts of shows recently with the former American, uh, the, the former Israeli ambassador to Israel, uh, to, to America, uh, Itamar Rabinovich on 75 years of peace, uh, failure of peace, uh, one with Anthony Lowenstein, Australian-based uh, critic of the state of Israel, others with historians on the conflict like Michael Scott Bauman. Some people might be watching this and say, why would I trust Uri Kaufman, uh, a Long Island real estate developer whose father was a rabbi, whose family friend of Joe Lieberman, who's one of America's most insistent um, uh, Zionists. Why would we trust you on this? Well, it is footnoted. Uh, there's about 15. Well, I, that goes without saying. I mean, even even the most biased books have footnotes. Uri. Okay, for sure. So here's the story. Um, we all suffer from something called cognitive dissonance. When people have very, very deeply held beliefs and then facts appear that contradict those beliefs, people change the facts. They don't change the beliefs. And we see this all the time in any number of, uh, of different places. Um, you know, Trump won the election and Clinton supporters said, well, you know, it was with an aide, whatever it was he did, it was with an aide in, in the Oval Office, but it didn't relate to his job. And O.J. Simpson was innocent. There's all sorts of stuff like this. When I get into situations like that, I always engage in a thought experiment. I call it the Belgium test. I ask myself, what would I say if this was Belgium, not Israel? And then I guide myself that way. So, for example, in the book, I uncovered an instance in which Israeli soldiers executed Egyptian prisoners of war. Not an easy thing to write about when you're as strong a supporter of Israel as I am. But I did the Belgium test and said, yeah, I'd write about it if it was Belgium. So it's in there. Um, there are statements by Israeli generals after the 67 war that were very dismissive of the Arabs, borderline racist. Again, not an easy thing to write about when you're a supporter of Israel. It's in there. I did the Belgium test. Um, and for what little it might be worth, Publishers Weekly reviewed the book and said it was very even-handed. And that was one of the reasons why they liked it so much. Yeah, I like the Belgium test. I have to use that as a phrase. I'll steal that one from you. Um, the book claims that it's bringing new information, uh, new declassified information, very briefly, uh, Uri, what are the what are the controversies still about the war? Uh, what what do what does everyone agree with, and, and what are the real issues that you wanted to confront in this new book? Because after all, for the fiftieth anniversary, uh, many books have already been um, written. Uh, I know uh, Heim uh, Herzog has uh, a very influential book, The War of Atonement. 
another book, um, uh, The Yom Kippur War by uh, Abraham Rabinovich. So many books have been written. What, what, what did you want to address that hasn't been addressed? So first of all, uh, Chaim Herzog's book was written in 1975. So he was very limited with what he was allowed to say. And he has, uh, he was at that point. I mean, he has been since the president of Israel. I'm not sure. Oh yeah, he and he was he was head of military intelligence in the 1950s. He was Israel's UN ambassador in the 1970s. He's the father, of course, of the current president of Israel, Bushi Herzog. So, you know, he he knew everything, but obviously he was very limited with what he was allowed to say in 1975. So it's a very good book for its time, but there's not much in it. Abram Ravinovich also, I have to say, it's it's a fine book, but he wrote it. It came out in 04. That's the paperback. It came out in 05. So he wrote it like around the year 2000. So he focused on the heroism of the men, which was extraordinary on all three sides, Israel, Egypt, and Syria. But he couldn't really focus on the decision making because it hadn't really been released yet. Um, since like the year 2012, 2013, a lot of information has come out. We have the complete Agronaut Commission report that was formed by Israel after the war to investigate what went wrong. We've got a lot of memoirs we didn't have before. Um, we were able, I had a team of researchers around the world, so we were able to research um, Russians who had been uh, advisors in both Egypt and a few in Syria. We went through the old East German Stasi records because they had mm. a presence in Syria. So there's a lot of information that just wasn't there before. The conventional narrative is that the Israel, the Israelis were asleep at the wheel. Golda Meir, another legendary figure from uh, early Israeli history, was in part blamed. Does do does Meir and, and Diane? How do they come out of your book? How have you changed their reputation? So Golda Meir, whenever the Israelis are asked to rank their prime ministers in polls. Ben-Gurion and Begin are always battling it out at the top. Sometimes Rabin might be there. Gold is always at the bottom. And that's just completely wrong. Um, we get a totally different picture of Golda. She was exonerated by the Agronaut Commission for the failures, the intelligence failures that led to the surprise. They were not her fault at all. Um, and then once the war broke out, she had to make a string of absolutely brutal decisions each one more difficult than the other. And she ran the table. She got every single one of them right. And that's why Israel won the war, which is pretty incredible. Uh, Dayan doesn't come out looking quite as well. He was, um, some would say, overly pessimistic. There are few have argued he had a mental collapse. I think that's a bit much. Um, certainly wasn't the fighting general that he'd been in previous wars. But you know what? In my view, I guess I can say I take the American view. Uh, MacArthur did not do very well in Korea, but he's still revered as the American Caesar. You got to look at the whole picture. And as I said before, if there's one man who deserves the credit for building the Israeli army. It's Moshe Dayan. Uh, one of one of the classics uh, of military history in the Middle East is Michael Oren's Six Days of War, the 67 war. June 67 and the making of the Middle East, making of the modern Middle East. All these books seem to come with the subtitle, The Making of the Modern Middle East, many makings of this Middle East. Um, how much do we see uh, the Yom Kippur War, the 73 war, as part two of 67, like the First and Second World Wars in Europe? That's exactly what it was. By the way, Michael Owen is a really nice guy and he gave me a beautiful blurb as well. But um the 67 war landed on the region like lightning on a sunny day. Nobody saw it coming. It was just a complete shock. And when Israel won the war, 
inside of a week, that was an even bigger shock. Um, and the Arabs wanted to cancel that. They wanted to get back the land, but without giving Israel pretty much anything in return. That's where the battle lines were drawn. The Arabs attempted a second time in 73, uh, at least to get that land back. They Let's just remind everyone, Uri, of what you call it that land. That's the ultimate euphemism. What was that land? So for Egypt, it was the Sinai Peninsula. The Sinai Peninsula is a piece of land approximately as large as, I think, Kentucky. Um, for Syria, it's the Golan Heights. The Golan Heights is actually pretty small. It's not much bigger than Nassau County, which is where I'm sitting right now. And that's uh, still uh, in Israel, whereas the Golan has, of course, been given back. Correct. And that's really what the war was fought about. Israel's goal was to set up a system in which the Arabs had a choice. It was either make peace with losing the land or make peace with Israel. Sadat very wisely made peace with Israel, so he got Sinai back. The Assads, Hafez and Bashar, the father and the son, were foolish. They did not make peace with Israel, so they never got back the Golanites, and I think it's pretty safe to say now they never will. And then what about what well, everyone has different words for the occupied territories, the, the West Bank, the um, the... The, the core issue which still divides uh, Israel and Palestine. So we're talking about Judea and Samaria, uh, no place called West Bank. Um, we're also, we're not talking what about- What do you mean there's no place called the West Bank? Let's, uh, let me frame it in these ways. Um, there was no place called West Bank before 1948. And now let us engage in another one of those thought experiments. Uh, let us assume argument's sake that every fact of the Arab-Israeli conflict is exactly the way it happened. Let's just change one fact. Let's assume that the nation that attacked Israel in 1948 was not Jordan, not the Palestinians. Let's say it was Germany. Or, or Belgium. Or Belgium, yeah, or Russia. In other words, <laughs> let's assume it's white people, not people of color. Let's stick with Germany. So Germany invades Israel in 48 in defiance of a UN resolution. Well, that that would be a bit much, given what the Germans have got up to in the Second World War. Uh, let's let's replace it with Belgium. Okay, replace it with Belgium. Fine. So Belgium invades Israel. Belgium says we want to kill all the Jews. Jews are pigs and monkeys. The Arabs still say Jews are pigs and monkeys. If you don't believe me, go on Google, type in Jews, pigs and monkeys and scroll with your mouse. They succeed in uh, emptying out uh, the central highlands of Palestine. Some of those Jewish communities were thousands of years old. It is now Judenrein, clean of Jews. Belgium sits there and they rename it, but let's kind of Flemishize it. We'll call it Visbankenstadt. And they sit there in this ethnically cleansed Visbankenstadt for 19 years. And then 1967 comes, Belgium invades again. Again, for the stated purpose of committing genocide. Only this time, Israel wins. And now the very people who used to live there show up and come back and say, hey, wait a minute, this is my home. I grew up here. The founder of the settler movement was a guy by the name of Hanan Porat, was in exactly that situation. Okay, do you really think the world would say, what are you talking about? This is Visbankenstadt. Belgium invaded, Belgium killed everyone. It's Belgian-occupied territory. I mean, nobody calls the Polish city of Łódź, which Yiddish speakers like my grandparents called Ludz, nobody calls it Litmanstadt, which is what the Nazis renamed it. So I don't know why we would rename it West Bank uh, after okay, but uh, again, it isn't the focus of your book, but 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 let's remind ourselves of that territory, whatever we want to call it. Fair enough. So Jordan did not enter the war, and King Hussein always said the great mistake of his career was he got into 
the 67 war because Nasser lied to him, but he did not get into the 73 war. Actually, he got into the war. He sent a brigade to fight in Syria, but he did not attack across the Jordan River. So he didn't get anything back. Um, subsequent to that, the Palestinians supplanted him. In 1988, uh, Jordan withdrew all its claims. And so Israel has been left essentially to negotiate with the Palestinians. And the core problem is the Palestinian leadership has rejected every compromise proposed since 1922. So there's a problem. It takes two to make peace. We are talking with uh, Rory Kaufman, uh, the author of 20, he spent 20 years on this book. It's quite an achievement. 18 days in October, the Yom Kippur War and how it created the modern Middle East. We're going to, the book is out uh, early next week. Exciting for Uri. Uh, hope he can make it a bestseller. We're going to take a short break now. We're going to thank our sponsor, Liberties Quarterly. Uh, Journal of Culture and Politics, uh, an excellent new publication. Then we're going to be back, and I want to talk in, in more detail about why the war broke out from the Syrian and the Egyptian point of view. So we'll be back in a second after this short um, video for Liberties magazine. Beyond the news, the noise, there is nuance, insight. Liberties is not just a journal of ideas. It's a meteor of intelligent substance. It's the place to be for engaged citizens. Politics, opinion, substance. Liberties is a triumph for freedom of thought. A quarterly of urgency, of cultural exploration, of intellectual delight, of immaculate prose. It's invaluable. Subscribe now or find Liberties at your favorite bookseller. And you can find out more at libertiesjournal.com. Uh, we are speaking with... Uri Kaufman, the author of a new book, 18 Days in October, a book uh, memorializing the 50th anniversary of uh, the Yom Kippur, Ramadan War, whatever you want to call it, 1973 in October. Uh, Uri, we've touched, uh, we, we talked a little bit about um, uh, Moshe Dayan and Golda Meir. What about um, from uh, the Arab point of view, uh, Sadat in particular, and uh, Hafez al-Assad, the Syrian leader at the time. Why did they invade? What were they trying to do? They were trying to get back the land that they lost in 1967 without giving Israel a peace treaty. It's as simple as that. Sadat's strategy was to fight a war of attrition. If he could get across the canal and just survive and stay in the field, Israel would have to do the same. Israel is a reservist army. Israel cannot afford to keep its army in the field for more than at most a couple of weeks. When it puts its army in the field, I mean, in, in the 67 war, you actually can see the number of pages in newspapers of the day go down from the moment the Israelis mobilize. I mean, you can see it that way. The, the factories go dark. Israel can't fight a long war. And the Egyptians knew that. The Syrians, on the other hand, thought they could conquer the whole Golan Heights. They, their plan was to get to the Jordan River. The Golan Heights is tiny, as I said. It's only about 27 miles wide at its widest. So if they could get to the Jordan River, then they have the Soviets impose a ceasefire. And that was the strategy. Uh, it didn't really work out for either one of them. And so, again, the choices were pretty stark after the war. Make peace with losing Sinai or the Golan Heights or make peace with Israel. Egypt made peace with Israel. Syria didn't. So are you suggesting then that both powers, Syria and Egypt, had limited goals that they had no interest and in thought of 
reoccupying Jerusalem or, or, or occupying Tel Aviv? Well, I'd say the following. I mean, I think certainly if they could have done it, they would have been only too happy to do it. I do think they went in with a pretty sober understanding of the situation that it was not going to be feasible to go past the Jordan River if you're Syria or, you know, the international boundary uh, all the way across Sinai if you're Egypt. Again, if the opportunity had presented itself, I don't think they would have hesitated. But uh, the dominant fact of the Middle East battlefield then is now is the Israeli Air Force. And the only thing the Arabs had to counter the Israeli Air Force were surface-to-air missiles that they got from the Soviets. Now, those surface-to-air missiles, or SAMs, were very, very effective within a tight range. And they devastated the American Air Force in Vietnam. In fact, that's what shot down John McCain. Um, but they didn't have a very long range. So the Syrians were able, if they brought their SAMs right up to the ceasefire line, which they did, it could cover the whole Golan Heights. Uh, Egypt, they couldn't have it cover more than maybe six miles east of the canal. So neither one planned to go further than that. Uri, the Russians, of course, or Putin's Russia has been intimately, tragically involved in the Syrian civil war. Back in 73, how much involvement did the Russians have in the planning of the war? Were they 100% supportive? Uh, I'm assuming that they may have had a degree of nervousness given the Cold War and given American relations with Israel? So Syria is not quite North Korea, but it's pretty darn close to it. It's very hard to get good information. Um, and interestingly, even the Soviets or former Soviets who are alive today, if they were advisors in Egypt, they'll talk to you. If they were advisors in Syria, generally speaking, they won't talk to you. I don't know how they did it, but there's just this veil of secrecy around Syria. So good information is pretty tough to come by. Um, there is some good stuff in the Stasi records um, in Germany today because they had a big presence there. How much involvement did they have with Syria? We don't really know. Probably not much. We do know that Brezhnev, who was then the premier of the Soviet Union, did not favor this war. He had very little confidence in the capabilities of the Arabs. Uh, everyone was pleasantly shocked on their side when it started out so well. From day one, literally, the Soviets were pleading with the Arabs to enter into a ceasefire. Uh, so Assad would have done it. Uh, Sadat refused. And that's actually why he lost the war. He could have signed a ceasefire on October the 12th, and he would have won the war. But he chose to soldier on. He thought he could continue conquering. And um, as a result, Egypt lost. Sadat, so uh, of course, will always be remembered for for, for being assassinated. How does he come out of the book? Um, mixed. Uh, certainly much, much better than Nasser. He was a much, much... Ruder. Yeah, but Nasser was dead by then. Yeah, yeah, Nasser was dead by then. But if you just compare him to his predecessor... I mean, uh, the standard the standard narrative, Uri, the, the sort of the, the accepted wisdom that I always understood is from the Arab point of view... The war was a success in the in the con in the sense that it simply reflected an ability to be able to wage to, to be able to wage modern war against a sophisticated enemy uh, and get out without severe embarrassment, like in '67. Is that fair? Is is that what one of the the conclusions you make in your book? Yeah, it, well, it's certainly true for Egypt. I don't know if that's necessarily true for Syria, but one of Egypt's war goals was to restore national honor, and the Israelis were very careful to let them do that. So again, when the war ended, Egypt did get to keep 
small little sliver of land in Sinai, which allowed them to claim some semblance of victory. Um, what was put in a side letter, so not as many people knew it was, Egypt also had to agree to pull its army way, way back, uh, and most importantly, the surface-to-air missiles, far from uh, west of the Suez Canal. So that meant it was basically impossible for them to start a new war, because if they did, the Israeli Air Force would wipe them out. This was, in fact, an offer the Israelis had made to the Egyptians before the war. It was known as the Interim Agreement. The Israelis said, we'll pull back. We'll let you have the Suez Canal. Just pull your army back so you can't attack us. And Sadat rejected it. And this is why I think Israel actually won the war. Israel got what it wanted in the form of the Interim Agreement. And in the form of, again, presenting Egypt with that stark choice, make peace with losing Sinai, make peace with Israel. But at least on the surface, it did look like Egypt had won a war. They did conquer some territory. So, yeah, Egypt did come out with its national honor restored. The Israelis were careful to let them do that. And it did set the stage later for Sadat being able to make peace with Israel. And then what about the Americans, of course, who have always been close to Israel and particularly close back then? It was Nixon land in October of 1973 or Nixon land and Kissinger land. How, how did the Americans come out and how surprised were they? It, it, surely it reflects a complete failure of American intelligence as much as Israeli intelligence. Well, it certainly did. But in fairness, uh, it would have been very difficult to predict an attack because Egypt mobilized and demobilized 23 times before in the year before the war. Um, Syria also mobilized and demobilized. It was a big intelligence failure. I do have to say the Americans, the NSA did a great job predicting the Russian invasion of Ukraine. So they are getting better at this. I think probably because the electronic measures are so much better than they used to be. Um, how did the Americans come out? The Nixon administration was not very friendly to Israel. In those days, the Democrats were kind of halfway friendly to Israel, um, and the Republicans were at best neutral, and Eisenhower was actually quite hostile. Um, in the case of the, of the October war, the Americans at first refused, first of all, they told the Israelis, you can't strike first, no matter what, don't do it. And second of all, they refused to supply Israel until October the 12th. It was only after Sadat rejected the ceasefire that Kissinger said, all right, if you don't want a ceasefire, fine, we'll show you. And he started supplying Israel. Um, after that, America was, was actually, I think, pretty hard on Israel. Well, what about the idea that had the Israeli army, for one reason or other, folded or failed, America would have intervened? How conceivable is that? I really question that. I doubt it's true. So I you don't... mean they would have allowed Israel, or modern Israel, to be, so to speak, swept into the sea and, and not raised a finger in 73? So that's a, that's a different... I mean, I think the scenario there is Israel might have used nuclear weapons. And that, that's the real scenario. And in fact, after the war, uh, the chief of staff of the Israeli army, a man named David Elazar, told one of his American counterparts that if the Syrians had gotten into northern Israel, they were going to use nuclear weapons. Now, there was no, they never prepared the nuclear weapons. Against who? I mean, what, where, where would they have fired it? At, at Cairo? At, at Syria? Maybe at Egypt as well. I don't know. But um, I mean, if there's an Arab army you know, crossing the 67 line on its way unimpeded to Tel Aviv, I, I think they would have gone nuclear. Would America have intervened at that point? I don't know. Uh, probably yes in a scenario like that, but certainly America would not have intervened. And were the, the, the 
the military in Egypt and Syria, they knew all obviously about Israeli nuclear weapons. Were they in any way fearful that had they had too much success, that might have been the result? That's a good question. It's opaque. We don't know for sure. But the short answer is probably yes. That probably did weigh on their decision to make it a limited war, to say, you know, six miles from the canal and then maybe a little further or the Golan Heights only. Uh, they were very, very aware of Israel's nuclear capability. Um, and that would have been very wise. Um, but one thing I do have to say, America would have never intervened to help Israel hold on to the territories it won in 67. That just wasn't in American interest at that time. We are talking with uh, Uri Kaufman, the author of an interesting new book on the six, uh, not on the Six Day War, on the Yom Kippur War, 18 days in October, the Yom Kippur War and how it created the modern Middle East. I sort of half joked Uri earlier that every book these days comes with the making of the modern Middle East. How, in your view, did this war almost 50 years ago, how did it create what we now call the modern Middle East? We just had um, uh, Robert Kaplan on the show uh, last week talking about uh, the modern greater Middle East, uh, which is a slightly different concept. But, but how was the Middle East made 50 years ago? What made it was that this was the last major war between Israel and countries. There was a brief uh, fight between Israel and Syria in the first Lebanon war. But apart from that, after this, it's only been wars between Israel and non-state actors. Hezbollah, Hamas, PLO, uh, Islamic Jihad, organizations like that. The era of wars between uh, Israel and nations came to an end. It is also why Egypt signed a peace treaty at Camp David. Because of that peace treaty, we have other peace treaties. Uh, I, it had to be Egypt that went first. It was the leader of the Arab world. It was the largest country, the largest army. If Egypt had not signed its peace treaty, there's no way Jordan would have signed. And there's certainly no way that any of the Abraham Accord nations would have signed. And here we are today, and we're talking about Saudi Arabia maybe signing. with. Yeah, and then that's in the headlines today. The, the Wall Street Journal is leading with a major story about normalizing the kingdom's ties with, with Israel on the back of the Abraham Accords. We've done shows on that, which may retrospectively seem one of the accomplishments of the, the Trump administration. Oh, it's, it's huge. There's no question. Whatever one thinks of Donald Trump, uh, the Abraham Accords were a paradigm shift because for the very first time, you had Arab countries that not only signed peace treaties with Israel, but want a really good, warm relationship with Israel. I mean, trade between Israel and the UAE, last I saw, I think it, it's north of a billion dollars. I think it's heading north of two billion. With Egypt and Jordan, it's always been described as cold peace. This is warm peace. This is peace uh, you know, between countries that want to have a relationship. There was also another event recently that kind of escaped media attention. Israel has been uh, invited into CENTCOM, America's Central Command. Doesn't sound like much, but it really is because now Israel is part of the same defensive plan as Arab states, which means Israeli officers are liaising with Arab uh, military officers. Israel is now part of the region. You didn't have this before. And you would have none of this had it not been for the fact that Egypt signed a peace treaty way back in the 70s. What about the three players, uh, Uri? It goes without saying that um, Hafez al-Assad's Syria, which is di disintegrated under his son, I mean, uh, leaving that, how has 
the war created modern Egypt and and has it played a role in in modern Israel, a country enormously divided, some people believe teetering on civil war? So first of all, Israel is not teetering on civil war. Israel is light years away from a civil war. And what's happening in Israel today is what happens in every democracy every five or 10 years. You've got this emotional issue. People are out on the streets. France, it happens almost every year, it seems like. Uh, there's been no violence at all. I don't expect any violence. Uh, I'm old enough to remember controversies like this in Israel in the past. So I, I don't I don't personally see any any civil well, war. Well, let, let, let's just, I mean, Egypt, since the war, and certainly since the assassination of Sadat, seems to have become paralyzed as, as, as a country and as a player in the region. How, how, how does this connect with the war itself? Well, the big, the big thing about the war was it shifted Egypt completely from being a country in the Soviet orbit to being in the American and Western orbit, where it has remained ever since. They've made peace with the fact that Israel is going to be there. Uh, it's a close ally of the United States. It's a very, very troubled country with really, really enormous problems. Um, but those problems would have probably been all that much worse if they had allied themselves uh, with the Soviets. As for Israel, it led to the first peace treaty. That's about as big as it gets. Uh, but the Yom Kippur War casts a really long shadow. Um, pretty much whenever something goes wrong in Israel, they call it, you know, the COVID was the Yom Kippur War for the health ministry. And when um, an Israeli prime minister named Ehud Olmert was acquitted initially, he later got convicted for something else. But when he was acquitted, they called it the Yom Kippur War for the prosecutor's office. I mean, the Yom Kippur War casts a really, really long shadow to this day. You mentioned uh, Golda Meir. You argue that she actually, in your book, comes out of it looking better than she was seen at the time. Meir, of course, represents the old kibbutz left wing or neo-socialist conception of what Israel should be. Israel's changed dramatically. Whether or not it's on the brink of civil war, is you disagree. A lot of people would disagree with you. But what about the shift from Israel, from Meir's vision, her community, her world, that Labour Party vision of Israel, their Zionism, to the Zionism of Netanyahu and the contemporary America uh, and contemporary Israel? Uh, has, has has the war had any impact on that? It, it certainly did. The war is what broke the iron grip that the Labour Party had on power in Israel. Uh, right after the war, there was an election in December of 1973, right after the war. Um, the Labour Party did win that one. And that's because Likud very foolishly opposed peace talks at Geneva. But after that, in 1977, Menachem Begin won on the ninth try, as it turned out. And ever since then, Israel has basically been a right-wing country. Um, if you look since that December 1973 election, the Israeli right has won practically every election in the ensuing 50 years. Um, so that seems to me to be the most... I mean, if you, if you want to assume that this war created the modern Middle East, that seems to be the most important result that it it broke the back as you said of the the israeli labor party and resulted in the coming to power of begin and then of course of, of netanyahu well I mean, certainly that's one of them i mean what really broke the back of the labor party was the failure of the oslo peace treaty they basically bet the farm on it and it failed and then they the labor party doubled down on the same socialist message 
which just does not work. If Israeli history teaches one thing, it is that socialism and the Jewish brain do not make for a very profitable partnership. And so the Labor Party today is down to just four seats in the Knesset. That is the bare minimum. There's no such thing as having three, two, or one. So they are literally at the minimum, which is about three and a quarter percent of the vote. It's nothing. Uh, Uri, um, you bring up Oslo. Um, could one argue that had Egyptian or Syrian or Jordanian politicians played a more central role in Oslo, that things may have worked out better? So in that sense, the negative consequences of the war are quite significant still in the failure of any kind of peace between Israel and Palestine? No, I don't think one has anything to do with the other. It's This is real simple. All of Arafat's aides have said in every interview that I am aware of since Oslo blew up, he never had any intention of signing a peace treaty with Israel. He went in with a very simple attitude. He'll take whatever they give him. They gave him a lot. Uh, but he was going to blow that thing up from day one. And he was violating that agreement almost literally before the ink was dry. The first terrorist attack happened two days after the agreement was announced. It was announced September the 10th. It was terrorism on the 12th. It wasn't physically signed till the 13th. But then the next act of terrorism was 10 days after that. So Israel got 10 days of peace out of Oslo. And terrorism doubled in the seven years after Oslo was signed and before and that's before the Intifada. Then the Intifada broke out and thousands were killed. So how's so, all this going to, finally, um, Uri, leaving aside your, your book, how is all this going to end with Israel making peace with all the Arab countries, forcing the Palestinians to accept the reality of peace, for better or worse? No, that's not going to happen. What's going to happen is Israel will sign peace treaties with, I think, a majority of the Arab League. Um, but there are going to be some holdouts. Uh, first of all, there's what I like to call the arc of ruin, Lebanon, Syria, Iraq, and well, Yemen. Syria, yeah, Syria goes without saying. Well, they're firmly in the Iran camp. So even if the Palestinians signed a peace treaty with Israel, those countries are not signing a peace treaty with Israel. I think a lot of the other Arab, Sunni Arab countries will, Saudi Arabia, Oman. There are two small countries in the Arab League, Comoros Islands and Djibouti. There's a possibility for Algeria and Tunisia. I think Mauritania will. But at the end of the day, there's going to be that holdout. I don't see the Palestinians signing a peace treaty with Israel anytime soon. They are pretty much in the Iran uh, camp as well because they're dominated by Hamas. Well, maybe you can spend the next 20 years figuring out how to make peace. I'm guessing in 20 years, Uri, uh, there still won't be peace. Take a lot longer than that, I'm afraid. Uh, would that it were that simple. But uh, no, it's... Uh, it's a tough situation. What I think is going to happen is Israel's already withdrawn from Gaza. That's done deal. I think when the Republicans return to the White House, Israel will probably do what it was going to do under President Trump. But then the Abraham Accords happen. That is to say they're going to withdraw from a chunk of Judea and Samaria. There'll be about a 70-30 split in favor of the Palestinians. They'll wall that off. It'll put up pretty much all the settlers on one side, pretty much all the Palestinians on the other. And that's where it's going to sit until someday, maybe 100 years from now, the Palestinians sign a peace treaty. That's, my, that's just a guess, but that's what I think is going to happen.